Progressive brings you Flowetry with Flow. A tool called Name Your Price. Get a grip on your spending like an industrial vice. It's nice. Beats rolling the dice. I prefer brown rice. Don't carry dumbbells when you walk on thin ice. Splash. Get insurance based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Paperback Writer! Hello everyone, and welcome to episode four of the Stolen Signs podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I'm Kendall Gilmet, alongside Harry Pavlidis of Baseball Prospectus. Hello Harry. Hello Kendall. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Excellent. We have an exciting episode to share with people today. We definitely do. We have Jonah Carey on the show today, and uh, we are extremely excited to talk to him. And yes. um, very strategic guest for us because one, uh, he'll hopefully get us some exposure, uh, but more seriously, he's got such a background in the baseball writing space, in and in and out of doing stats focused stuff yeah uh, and it's a part of this you know uh what i think we're going to call a recurring theme or series or something uh, and of of having writers come on the show and talk about not some stat or some project they've done but about but about what it's like to be a writer in this industry Right. And, you know, hopefully also alongside writers, um, other people who use stats in their work. So whether that's broadcasters or, um, you know, I guess, yeah, broadcasters, writers, broadcasters, but maybe entire world. That's it. We've now divided everybody line up. Yeah. One of two groups. You're a broadcaster or a writer. Hopefully different types of writers, though. So, um, you know, obviously Jonah's a national writer um, and, you know, pretty prominent. He's he's worked a lot of places. He started off at BP a long time ago. Um, 2002 is the first article. The first Jonah Carey byline. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, since then, he's written books. Uh, he, I know he edited uh, Baseball Between the Numbers, which actually, um, I think I mentioned on the first episode, that was kind of kind of my introduction into the Baseball Prospectus universe. Um, and um, yeah, I actually reached out to Do Jonah after that. Do you remember the chapter he wrote in that? I don't. I have it it's right here. It's opening chapter. And it basically... It's the title of it is something like, you know, why RBIs don't matter or something like that. And it's like, it's like we didn't, t- we, we will have this conversation with Jonah for everyone in a minute. And I was going to ask him specifically about that, but we talked around that. Right. But that was like the thing. It's like, you don't have to explain that anymore, mostly, you know, and you can just skip it because by this point, everybody's heard it. And if they don't believe RBIs are misleading or merely useless, then what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really funny. Look at the top. Just go Amazon if you don't have the book or you don't want to buy it, although we encourage you to. Amazon has the look inside. You can see the table of contents. And it's kind of A, the list of authors is pretty <laughs> pretty stellar. And the titles of the of, and the topics are 
a marker in time right. of where things were 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Yeah. So for me, that was, that was interesting. Um, and, um, I think at some point Jonah lived in Seattle. And so, and at that time I was living in Seattle. And so I reached out to him and I was like, Hey Jonah, I loved your book. And he's like, yeah, all these guys did the hard work. Um, they did the, the stats writing and stuff, but, uh, but I thought he did a great job on that too. And then he wrote some books, uh, the extra 2%, which is about the Tampa Bay Rays, um, which is sabermetric darlings. Right. Yeah. Right. And that kind of outlines, um, kind of how the front office worked and, and how they squeezed um, everything they could out of their payroll. And then after that, has written Up, Up, and Away, which is the story of the Montreal Expos. And, um, you know, obviously, Jonah has a, a special relationship with the Expos. So uh, we talk about that a little bit as well. Yes, um, we do. Yeah, it's kind of, it's funny, the article that he came came out with the day we talked to him, which is yesterday, uh which would have been Wednesday the 23rd, was about UP. And it was about the game UP was ejected in, and it was a 22-inning uh, affair. And then Jonah will tell us all about that in a second. You'll hear that. But what's funny is after we finished recording with Jonah, and it was like, wow, that was interesting, this discussion about that game. And you turn on the TV, and there's Rochelle pitching into extra innings in a 0-0 game. So on the 28th anniversary of the UP Zero zero deep into extra innings. The Dodgers went shallow into extra innings in a zero zero game. So it's kind of a, a lot of loops in time came seem, seemed connected yesterday. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. So uh, we will be talking with Jonah in a little bit. But before we do so, I want to encourage everyone to reach out to us on Twitter. Um, follow us at stolen underscore signs and then email uh, stolen underscore signs at baseballperspectus.com. We are on iTunes. Rate and review us, please. And um, yeah, we haven't reached a threshold to have our rating displayed yet. So, so we don't know how we're doing. Yeah, we need to know. But it's, it's worse not knowing. <laughs> I lose sleep over it sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, we are excited to share our conversation with Jonah with you. And um, yeah, so stick around for that. everybody today we have with us jonah carey and he is going to be the first guest on our stats and storyteller series um jonah welcome to stolen signs thanks for having me this is exciting i like being the first thanks for coming on um yeah so today um we wanted to talk a little bit about a piece that you recently wrote um about the, the your upiversary um Yes. And, and uh, if you want to maybe give us a little bit of background on that. Yeah, not an analytical piece. I will say that from the top. <laughs> um, but today's the 28-year anniversary of – actually, I mean, there were some analytical quirks in the game, statistical quirks. 28-year anniversary of one of the weirdest games objectively ever, and I would argue the weirdest game in the 36-year history of the Montreal Expo. So two 
big ones. Number one, it was scoreless for 21 innings. It was 0-0, 21 innings. Only once in Major League Baseball history has a game gone scoreless that long. It was a 1968 game between the Astros and the Mets. So the second longest scoreless tie ever came ended at one to nothing. The Dodgers won this game in 22. And the other one is, in 22 innings, the Dodgers drew zero walks. Zero walks. They did not have Wade Boggs on that roster. That was a pretty happy team. They were last runs for that year and uh, did not walk at all. That's the only time it's ever happened in Major League history. No team has gone that long in a game without walking. And so that was kind of the, you know, the number stuff. But then, my God, so much happened. To keep it short, basically, Eddie Murray got jobbed about a half dozen times. <laughs> and, the, and there's a video. I, I wrote this article. Embedded within it is a YouTube clip, which is six hours and 39 minutes long, and is almost entirely in French. And yes, you should watch all of it because it's amazing. And it shows Murray just completely blowing up over and over. And then the main plot line here is Yuppie getting tossed from the game. Yuppie, to keep this uh, relatively brief, Tommy Lasorda, very irritable fellow, as you might know. And Yuppie just decided to have fun with him. And the uh, dugout at Olympic Stadium, the roof was made of metal. And it was right on top of your head. It wasn't really dugout. It was right at field level. So if if Yuppie was dancing on a dugout or doing his patented slide as if he was emulating a base dealer, you would hear it. And Yuppie just kept escalating and escalating and escalating. Finally, the sort of had enough of it. He ordered Bach and Bob Davidson to toss Yuppie from the game. Yuppie got ejected from this game. And the resulting animated gif of Yuppie kind of hopping off the dugout and looking so dejected. And again, it's, it's the mascot. I mean, the mascot can't really look dejected, but the body language was so perfect. It's just amazing. And it's probably my favorite thing in the history of the internet. And uh, this is a very, very long and involved story of how the ejection came to pass. What happened? You could see Tom TCN here, Tommy Lasorda. We have video of him saying uh, very, very profane things toward Yuppie. And uh, it's, it's funny and ridiculous and surreal. I, I think the key is that he's wearing pajamas and has a pillow. Yes. yes. So I, I, my theory is mostly untested now is that the, the key to a mascot looking dejected is is sleepwear and possibly a pillow. I'm not sure if the pillow is critical or not. The sleepwear might be sufficient to create the uh, the mood, as it were. <clears throat> yeah, there's a moment also. I interviewed a few people for this. I got all the Tim Wallach and Kenny Singleton used to be an announcer for the Expo. Now that's Yankees games, of course, on Yes. And there's Getty Elliott Price, who's a friend of mine. He was a radio broadcaster, back then cub reporter. And uh, he was in the dugout because he was expecting, you know, going in the eighth inning, expecting quotes in the ninth. And he just stayed there because the game's still going on. And when Yuppie got ejected, he sort of cir- circled back. He was on his way toward the tunnel, but he went all the way around. And he came right by the Expo's dugout, and he looks at, at Elliott Price. And he says, I didn't do anything. And Elliot is quoted in the story as saying, I thought to myself, quote, I thought to myself, oh, my God, Yuppie talks. I enjoyed that very, very much. That's a pretty historic thing, actually, for a mascot to break the sound barrier. Yeah, I know. And I mean, um, AJ so Mass of the SBN, who I know a little bit, played Mr. Met for a couple of years. I know people who either played mascots or have been around mascots before. I just did a podcast with the with the guy who's played the Philly Fanatics for literally a quarter century. That mm-hmm. is absolutely a no-no. You never, not even in the tunnel and stuff like that. It's very rare. Right. So, so talk about the noise he was making when he was sliding on the dugout. Mm-hmm. Was that was that inspired by a particular base dealer? Was it was it Reigns or was it somebody else? Yeah, I mean, the background here is that the Expos had a, another mascot named Suki in 1978. It was horrible. He looked like Mr. Metz 
robot astronaut friend and very frightening. That didn't last. So they brought in Yuppie in 79. And uh, yeah, I mean, Reigns saw his first action in 79 and going to the lineup regularly in 81. But they were stealing a lot of bases in general then. Ron LaFleur stole 97, I think, in 1980. More than Reigns ever stole in a season, by the way. Ronnie Scott was a base dealer. Andre Dawson had his moment. So they were just a running team. They had a turf in the era. It lent itself to, lent itself to it. But I think Reigns really kind of popularized that. And uh, yeah, they had a little trapezoid, like a little home plate on or a little painted kind of thing on the dugout. So the point was that UP would emulate this, that if somebody stole a base, he would do the same. And um, the guy who was playing UP back then, this was the second UP, was a guy named Pierre Belil. Pierre Belil was a police officer. So Pierre Belil had been in, you know, been in action and had been in some tough spots or whatever. And the book on him was that he was, you know, came away unscathed, never got into any shootouts, never anything horrible or whatever. And the worst thing that ever happened to him (laughs) physically was that he was on top of the dugout and slid and slid too far and fell off the dugout and got two black eyes and a broken nose. This happened not long before this game in which Tommy was sort of had him ejected. So poor Pierre Berlue, uh serving, uh, protecting and serving the public and then ultimately suffers his worst injuries and worst indignities while wearing the giant orange costume. Well, yeah, you mentioned uh, Reigns, who you definitely have a, a special relationship with. Sure. Um, you know, he mentioned you in his Hall of Fame acceptance speech. You know, the one guy I want to talk about who was inspirational for me, especially in the past three or four years in my candidacy into the Hall of Fame. And that guy is Jonah Carey. This was a kid that grew up watching Tim Raines play. I remember seeing a picture of us. I think he had to be about six or seven. And I was in my, my Montreal uniform, and he told me this was, this was me. I mean, Jonah's about 30-something now. I say, no way. He said, yeah, this is me back in the day. You were my favorite player. He said, I, I watched your every move as a player. And today I want to thank him so very much for his support and for him getting me, getting that name out there. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I was able to do that I didn't even know myself. This guy told me about stats that I'm like, did I do that? You know, and not only that, you know, we become really great friends. Kind of going, getting more back to the stats angle. So we hear a lot about, um, you know, people in quote unquote smart front offices trying to translate advanced statistics to their current players. But um, he mentioned that, that you showed him some advanced statistics and um, he, he kind of was you know surprised by them or didn't realize that that was him or, or what, what have you. Uh, how did you go about translating that to not only a current player, but a, a, an older player, someone who's been out of the game for a while? How did you go about translating those stats and, and what were those stats? 
Yeah, I mean, when we say advanced stats within this company, within the three of us, I don't think they would be perceived as particularly advanced. It was just a little more of a matter of looking at things in a different way. And one of the big ones for me, really not advanced at all, but not something that gets talked about necessarily, not something on the back of a baseball card, it's just times on base. That if we're going to talk about 3,000 hits and all 3,000 hits automatically get the induction, all right, fine, I'm okay with that. But if a hit is, you know, if a walk is nearly as good as a hit, that's what they say. They say in Little League, according to linear weights, it's largely true, although obviously you can advance two bases when a guy just single and so forth. But it's, you know, more or less true. Well, Reigns reached base more times than Tony Gwynn, Roberto Clemente, Harmon Killebrew, Eddie Matthews, Roberto Alomar, and a whole bunch of legends. I mean, like, really, really great players. And so why would he not get credit for that? That, that always mystified me. The guy walked... I think it was 1,300 times. I mean, a lot. He had 2,600 hits. He fell short of 3,000. And I think, you know, aside from the Montreal thing, and maybe there were a few people who were upset that he once took cocaine, or one season he was constantly taking cocaine, even though that's what everybody in the era did. Whatever the reason, but I really, really think that it wasn't necessarily the coke, or it wasn't necessarily the Expos thing. I think that people just didn't see 3,000 hits or 500 home runs. They're like, eh, that's it, because people are lazy, and they don't take the time to really assess you know, the proper candidacy. Now we could look at, well, shout out Jay Jaffe. Jaws is a great stat. We can look at WRC plus. We can look at, you know, for the pitcher, we could look at fair run average. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we could do. Uh, you know, we could apply true advanced stats, but in this case, it was just a simple thing. And so I started talking in those terms. I said, yeah, Tony Gwynn went into the hall of fame with more than 97% of the vote on the first ballot. Reigns was getting a quarter of the vote in his first two times, and Tim Reigns reached base more times than Tony Quinn. And if you go by the actual events, that's by War, Jaws, or whatever, they are pretty much identical baseball players. Very different trajectory. Quinn won, what, like eight batting titles or something, um, but, and played for one team. Maybe that helped him. But they're basically the same guy. You know, it's not an insult to Quinn. Quinn's a magnificent ballpark. Totally a worthy Hall of Famer. But how is Reigns getting hosed like this? Not only with those times on base, but one of only five guys to steal 800 bases, which is not advanced stat. And again, what I'm going to tell you now is you're not going to think of it as advanced stat at all, but he's the highest percentage base dealer of all time above a certain number of attempts. I think it's 400 or whatever. If you, if you go down a threshold, it's Carlos Beltran, who's very high up. But yeah, once you get to a certain number of attempts, it's a range. So here's a guy who steals bases almost 85% of the time successfully. He's got 800 bags. He's reaching base, I think it's 3,977 times. Gee, he should be in the Hall of Fame. Again, are these advanced stats when the three of us are talking? Of course not. But to Reigns, who's, you know, probably raised on batting average and RBIs, maybe run scored, yeah, it does qualify as advanced. And I think that my job has always, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't really do uh, regression analysis. I don't do that stuff. My, my, my understanding of what I'm supposed to do is I can understand the complicated concepts, and then I translate them into English. When I was first with Baseball Perspectives, you know, I'm working with murderers, real frick. I mean, you know, Nate Silver and, and Keith Wilmer and, and uh, Michael Wolverton and Clay Davenport and Gary Huckabee and all these guys. I was a journalism major. So for me, it was just trying to make sense of this stuff. And so when Reigns is getting it's very nice what Reigns said. It's all very nice. All it was is just everything that I've always done is just saying, all right, let's establish some context. We know that he's a good player. How good was he? Let's go a little bit beyond batting average to see what we can find. That's pretty much what it boiled down to. So in your work, you know, I don't know, things have probably changed a lot since you wrote the, the extra 2% because <laughs> things move fast. You know, I mean, yeah. but yes. the basic challenges of the communication 
of these concepts to players. It's never about the advanced stats, right? It's always about the most basic things like on base percentage versus batting average. It, that you know, that's not going to unlock the mysteries of the world, but it, it is going to remind you, you know, kind of level set that there's a lot of value here, and mm-hmm. you shouldn't you shouldn't disregard it. Uh, efficiency in stealing bases, you know, that's another one. You know, that was so it was very kind of basic things. So like, just don't add up the hits, don't just add up the stolen bases. Look at the walks. Look how many times you get caught, and then then put that re- recontextualize the player's value that way. And it's not like there was anything advanced there. So I kind of imagine with the smart front office concept, it's it's mostly simplifying, you know. So there, there's definitely the storytelling, you know, the, the translation of information. You know, it's not making complicated things simple, but making complicated things understandable. I think. Yeah, I think that's right. And and again, I think that this this industry, you know, there's a lot of room for all kinds of different people. I mean, there are people that do some serious heavy lifting. Some of them have, you know, prominent bylines. Some of them don't, you know, they work behind the scenes. Maybe they, you know, they'll, they'll collab with people, whatever. They're, they're not necessarily interested in writing about it. That's just who they are. And I'm the other way. I just, I'm not a math whiz at all. Uh, I understand the concepts well enough. Uh, and of course now we have baseball reference play index and all this stuff. So, you know, all the, whatever you got to go into the database. You got to find this or whatever. You got no Python and R. I mean, sure. It's great. Like if you're doing heavy lifting, it's fine. But for my purposes, for a broad audience, which is what I have at CBS sports and SI. Yeah. Baseball reference play index will do just fine. Uh, or stats Inc or Elias or whatever, all that stuff. And so, but if I you're, but if you're doing, is, if you're on kind of another end of the conversation, doing the research, of the work for a story where you're, where you're talking to executives, talking to analysts, yeah, then then you're going to actually, you know, is, is is that harder than collecting information? Because you have to, you know, both ask, interpret, and then kind of translate, as it were, as opposed to mining for data and figuring out what the best way to, to, to fit that into a story, if it fits. Well, with, with execs, it's interesting because they – they're just programming. They're so used to speaking in the simplest terms possible because they do not assume that reporters are going to, you know, want to engage them about the linear weights of this or, or the, you know, the really advanced stuff. So even, I mean, I guess relatively speaking, you know, compared to your main, whatever typical mainstream writer, although even the t- typical mainstream writer is changing, but they'll assume a little bit more knowledge. And I've talked to Farhan Zaidi. You know, Andrew Friedman, Jeff Breidich, and people, I mean, average GM, I guess, at this point knows their analytics quite well. And they won't dumb it down for me, but they're also not going to really go in the weeds. So I think we're lucky that the baseline assumption of these guys is that we're not that smart, that we don't necessarily know all that stuff. And furthermore, by the way, even though GMs are analytically inclined, how many of them are actually doing their own regression analysis? I do zero. Maybe maybe a few of them can. Yeah, they're, cons- they're consumers of, of it, basically. They have to know. Of course, it's, they have kids yeah. who can do this stuff. So, yeah, so I, I think that lends itself to making it easy. And, and it's funny because I had this kind of, not existential crisis, but I, I remember around, I don't know, 06, 07, 08, I was like, my prospectus, and I was going out on my own. I was going to try to, still, I was still financial. I was a financial stuff for more than half of my career, actually. But I was trying to figure out what was my niche going to be in sports writing. And I thought, well, I mean, I really need to learn this stuff. I need to take courses in Python. I need to get on in all this. 
And that was right around the point when the explosion and availability of all this stuff happened. That's when play index, I mean, I don't know the exact date, but, you know, and Brooks Baseball and these invaluable sites come into play. And I'm just like, I mean, I can still learn it, but I'd be learning it for self-edification and it wouldn't really probably make me better at my job because I'm still a journalism major. I'm still a writer. I've always been a writer. That's my best skill. Even if I make myself better in the real research methods element of it, that's never going to be the thing that I'm going to hang my hat on. And so I didn't really go down far down that path. I, I mean, I guess I have some regret about that um, because there are people that I can really write that can totally kick my ass in that respect. <laughs> but then again, I don't, you know, for me in this industry, what do I always say? I, I'm trying to remember exactly the term that I use. I'm extremely ambitious, but I'm not competitive. I don't want to kick Ben Lindbergh's ass. If Ben Lindbergh writes a great story, I'm going to fucking shout it from the rooftops. I want 7,000 million people to read it because Ben Lindbergh is fantastic as a person and as a writer, and that's great. Maybe we dwell in the same space and we write for different publications. I don't give a crap about that. I hope that he makes a billion dollars and is the most successful writer ever. I could say that about you know, my colleague R.J. Anderson and a whole bunch of other people, perspectives, everybody. But I'm very ambitious. I still want to do really good work. So I just have to make sure I get to the point that even if I'm not, if I didn't go down the rabbit hole of figuring it all out and really getting to be a, a terrific researcher, at least I'm competent enough that that combined with my ability to ask questions and write a story and so forth are going to play and I can be the best me that I can be, even if I'm not competing with necessarily other people. So the, and the industry's changed a lot, right? I mean, that's another, uh, I mean, the ex, is there more of an expectation for, you know, not just for yourself, you're, you've been established in this business for some time, but I think for, yeah. for writers who are less established coming up through, you know, perhaps, you know, just either from other industries or writing, you know, yep. not writing on major platforms yet. Do you see that there's been a change in the expectation from the readers at slash the publishers in terms of what their ability is to, to, to wrangle data and research or is that just kind of a nice to have that some people happen to pop up with? As you fellows might know, I literally have every job in America. <laughs> I work for a lot of different places. And the common denominator, and I grant, granted, they're just resting in a me and they're not a 22-year-old kid. But I'm pretty sure the kid is a 20-year-old, 22-year-old kid, too, is they always say they want content to be smart. Smart means all kinds of different things. You know, smart can mean... I don't want to be egotistical or whatever, but if I may, I think the UPP today was pretty smart. It was silly. It was, you know, Tommy was sort of dropping F-bombs or whatever, but it was like a narrative and there was something there and people could read and be like, oh, that was fun and I learned something. That's cool. There's, oh, it wasn't a statistical piece at all. So you can still have that, but when you talk about smart, it, it forces you to at least be conversant in this stuff. If somebody brings up, forget about the acronym, forget about WRC plus or OPS plus. If they just talk about the idea that we have to look at Jeff Samarja's stats differently because he pitches at AT&T Park, or we have to look at John Gray's stats because he pitches differently at Coors Field. If you don't, if you're not aware of that, that's a problem. I mean, you, you have to have some basic knowledge of that. I would submit to you that that's the case if you write for the New York Times, the Boston Globe, or whatever, as well as obviously, certainly baseball perspectives and beyond the box score and fangrass and so forth. But I think even in the mainstream, you need to have a little bit about that because content is driven but certainly by writers, but also by editors. The editors that I've had in the last few years, they're now younger than I'm, 42 years old. They're younger than I am. So they're of a newer generation where they know about all this stuff. 
maybe not as maybe not as much, maybe not more, maybe they don't do regression analysis, but there's an expectation from them that this stuff should happen. The crusty old editor that da 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 and get me two thousand words about this and I don't care about that. Those people are going out of the business. And and so again, does it have to be a heavily, you know, a dense kind of piece? No. But you better understand Again, context, context and anything. If you want to tell a story without stats, you still have to understand context. If you want to tell a story with stats, you still have to understand context in that respect. Too. I think that that's important. And I'm really lucky um, that I got in on this era, that if I was 20 years older, the beginning of my career uh, writing would have been much tougher because we didn't have those editors who were open to this stuff. You know, when uh, when I joined, I'm baseball perspective, I joined five, six years in, so that was already getting more established. But even then, there definitely was some resistance then, for sure. You know, and that's changed quite a bit since then to now people who read Nate Silver back, I mean, Nate's not old, but people read Nate Silver in kind of age, they're 21 and they're brilliant and terrific and awesome and really good writers and really good researchers and all that stuff. And it's really nice to see. I think it's great. And I'm excited that the generation after me is way better than I am because they can write as well or better and they have the ability to do really heavy lifting. That's cool. That's great progress for the industry. Right on. And yeah, I think with that, we'll take a little break and uh, we'll be back to talk to Jonah more. And we're back. Yeah, so now, Jonah, I have a question for you. Obviously, your work is is aimed at um, kind of the general public. Mm-hmm. Or where have you found, or have you found at all, um, anybody kind of more inside baseball looking at your work, um, even though it maybe necessarily wasn't for them, but um, kind of that you know, picking their brain a little bit and being like, oh, like that made me think of X, Y, or Z. Is that, is that something that's ever happened? Or can you imagine that happening, I guess? You're saying that somebody like a GM or whatever would read my piece, call me up and say that was interesting. I didn't think about Cody Bellinger that way, or, or do I have that wrong? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I just want I to make sure I understand your like, question. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think somebody like your audience, like I said, is more of a general public audience. But yes, do you right. find that um, folks inside baseball are familiar with your work and or oh, okay. um, have conversations around it? Not necessarily like, wow, Jonah, you really um, have influenced the, you know, player acquisition strategy for Team X, but more like just having that conversation. And um, and how does that go? So first of all, I will tell you, I would only describe one general manager as a, as a friend, you know, as a real, like an actual friend. That general manager and I just had lunch recently, and he flat out asked me for advice on something. He said, all right, let me run something by you. What about this? And the answer that I gave him was not an answer that he thought of. And he said, I'm going to try this path. And I said, if that guy is in your uniform next year, I demand royalties. And I was, you know, no, I can't, there's no such thing as royalties. But there was a non-zero chance that this player could end up playing for that team 
in part because I suggested in the first place, now they might have come to that solution themselves. This was kind of the beginning of their search for this particular commodity, and they have the ability to do research or whatever. But he was just like, oh, that guy, mm, like that. That was great. I was I was blown away by that um, because obviously this team, like every other team, has a research methods department and, and well, very smart GM and all that stuff. But um, sometimes a different point, you just look at having another another voice in the chorus can help a little bit. So you know that aside, um, I <laughs> I don't. I never perceive that people know who I am in the industry. I don't like there are people who I know. I know them. They know me. So that's fine. But if it's somebody I'm meeting for the first time or whatever, my default is hi, I'm Jonah. I write for so-and-so and whatever. And they're like, yeah, we know who you are and whatever. That's fine. And I didn't, that's pretty new. I think a lot of that is probably Grantland because it was really high profile. And I think it, it, that was a pretty good intersection where it allowed Granlin was sort of progressive in its storytelling methods, but it also invited us to do analysis. I mean, Bill Barnwell at football and Zach Lowe in basketball. And of course I got to work with Ben Lindbergh. It's terrific. And that made it so that it kind of reached the mainstream. So there would be GMs that were analytically inclined. There would be GMs that were not analytically inclined, but maybe they liked reading, I don't know, Bill Simmons or Bill Barnwell or whatever. And then they sort of came to it. So that was kind of the, the takeoff point. So that's pretty recent that I had that sort of recognition in the industry. Now they're, they're hardcores. Like I've known John Daniels since, I don't know, 2004 because I did a, a, what do you call it? A, like a pizza feed. It was in a bookstore. So there was no pizza, but me, him and Jamie Newberg hung out with like Rangers fans in 2004 when JD was like, you know, just starting out. He was John Hart's Lieutenant. And then, uh, when Reigns got into the hall of fame, JD texted me and he goes, Buddy, that's great. You know, buddy, I, we're not buy all think we're buddies, but man, that's great. Wow, cool, whatever. That's amazing, and and that's that's a pretty neat flip. So, I guess the, the long answer to your question is, um, this stuff has permeated. And by the way, you know, Jeff Luna knows who Harry Pavlidis is. You know, uh, Dad Levine knows exactly who Meg Rowley is. I mean, they they know this. It's, they're aware. They're very aware because we're the ones out there doing this in public. Now they've picked off people, obviously, you know, Mike Sass went to a team and Colin Wires and Kevin Goldstein, I guess they all went to the same team. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, a, a lot of, uh, so many, particularly prospective people have been picked off, right? Haim and, and James, of course, basically run the Tampa Bay Rays now. That's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Um, but the ones who haven't been picked off are still red. And, and because we've got StatCast and new ways to slice and dice things, you know, we, maybe not me, because I'm not the cutting edge researcher, but people in our field can do stuff that is above the level of front office. I do believe that to be true. Not always. I think teams have deep pockets and the ability to hire 10 Mike Fast or whatever. But don't think for a second that, that well, someone like you, Harry, is not doing work that isn't seen. Of course it's seen. They all know. They're all, you know, they have, if not... Maybe it's not sad on one day. Maybe it's the twins, you know, the 23-year-old kid that they hired out of Princeton or whatever. But it's seen. It's known. And if something is cutting edge, you're either going to get hired or you're going to get a phone call saying, all right, can we acquire this knowledge or tell me more about it or whatever. Absolutely positive. Yeah, I think that's kind of a shift at BP for, you know, where our intention was not to develop people to be writers, but to develop people for front office jobs. So we have way more people working at BP Stats than we've ever had, and the idea is to lose them. Uh, right. And so, so far, we've done pretty good at that. You know, I mean, 
one of our interns who graduated through the intern program has stuck around as working with us in consulting. Uh, then we have another one who's working as an intern for a team. Uh, one of our yep. developers was with us for a few months before he got hired by a team as a development intern. And, you know, so that's just basically for BP, that's had to be, we decided to stop worrying about losing people and start to do it by design. Make it quite yeah. So, because the industry has changed so much where we know we're getting read. That's so why I tell people, it's like, if you if you write an, uh, an analytical article at BP, you're going to get read by at least 20 of the front offices in baseball, high all the way, yeah. very high, high up. I mean, you know, it's like it's and probably all 30 at some level, because that's just a lot of GMs will say, well, my morning reading list is, you know, what's new on BP, fan graphs, you know, and they check you know, beyond the box score. I mean, people have been getting a lot of people have been going through beyond the box score straight to jobs now. That's that's become a pipeline. Yeah, they have great people. They've had really yeah. So sure. which is it's so that it's changed now where, you know, you're getting read. But it's also people are reading the, the you know, non-analytic work, which is is the culture and the romance and enjoyment of baseball. Like people are reading things that aren't written by the BP stats people at BP. You know, we're, we're, we're less stat centric, but I, but like you said, you know, it's like people reading Meg, you know, she's, she's not, she's not like, here's the new model for pitcher, uh, you know, analysis. She's right. writing much more interesting and fun things than that. And she's really good at it. So people know who she is because she's a good writer at a place that people happen to. So there's this, there's this combination of, of interest where it's like, I'm interested in baseball. I love baseball. I want to read fun things about baseball and I want to also see the stats and, and the research. I mean, it's an overlapping audience and all the way up to, I think the, the senior people in front offices, because they obviously like well, baseball. <laughs> right. For sure. And, and the thing that I would say is that certainly what you say, I totally makes sense about the graduation of the BP stats people to front offices. All that's true. But I think that was BP's mandate from the get go, right? That you had a diverse group that when it started, you know, it's guys like Wolverton and Davenport. I mean, they're heavy lifters. They're inventing. Yeah. That was, a, that was at the very level. Exactly. That was, that's yeah. always been the brand, but what, you know, which is why when I was sniffing around the edges of this place where, you know, I was like, this is, you know, that's going to keep happening. Colin's going to go, you know, so you have to, you know, you have to just build for that process. And right. But what I was going to, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say was, okay, Wilner invented replacement level clay and Michael, whatever, but Joe Sheen was a phenomenal writer. Joe Sheen yeah. did not invent stats. But he did a really great job of, of what I'm trying to do. I mean, frankly, Joe was one of my earliest influences, you know, obviously Nyer and Bill James and so forth. But the ability to synthesize and make it mm -hmm. crisp and punchy. And I mean, that's the, and, and people read, still read Joe, you know, in his newsletter and still read yeah. those people from that generation or whatever. And, and they will. Yeah, and you know what? If Meg spins a tail or, or Brian Brisby writes a really weirdo story that's like 3,000 words or Sam Miller's piece this week or whatever. Yeah. A lot of GMs are reading Sam Miller's piece. It was, it was exactly. not at all analytical. Sam so and Ben, I yeah. I mean, they're exactly. Yeah, we're, it, it, it's become, it's like if there's like analytical things. stuff in there, it's just, it's baked in to the story and the fabric of, of, of baseball at this point. I mean, 10 years ago, we wouldn't be saying that. You'd have to explain everything. We wouldn't. You wouldn't have stance slanted writers being so naturally following the path that you have. And it was much more of the BP thing was you know hardcore guy or gal who could write uh, about stats and create stats and goodbye. They're going to a front office and like that. That's that's those people get snapped up faster than you can you can imagine. So we had to right. look at you know can we 
spread these skills out. Can we change this a bit? But now it's 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 everybody. There's there's much more overlap and people going. I think potentially you know permeating the two layers. It's like there's an editorial side and there's a stat side. The the level of quality is uh, and demands and competitiveness are higher on both. But people are still going back and forth between the two. And well, I, I think there, yeah, yeah, but so it's reflected well, in the way people write. They don't have to be afraid of including a concept that you know. No. Uh, that won't detract from their story. They won't be some nerdy stats writer if they mention, you know, WRC plus. <laughs> right? I mean, that's not no. going to be like, this is a stats article. It's like, no, this is still about you getting ejected. <laughs> no, it's amazing that this team never walked. And you know that's important, but you don't have to explain it. It's actually just, it's part of baseball. Well, it's two things for me. Like, I just, you know, like, I hadn't read Patrick debuted until a couple of years ago. I'm like, wow, this guy's like really good. Where did he come from? You know, you just want to, you just develop your favorites of the next generation. I, I hadn't read Meg and then I started reading Meg and on and on. I mean, the, the beginner writers at Fangraphs or whatever. I just remember my first time, first piece I wrote for Baseball Perspectives was a garbage article. It was an interesting concept, but the hypothesis was all wrong. It was about this idea of a success cycle. Uh, and, and granted, like it was something that at the time in 2002, so you could sort of understand it. It wasn't deeply analytical, but the general idea was it was a strategy article. It was, if you're not good, don't try to win 78 games. But it's so far beyond that, and, and there's a million ways to do it. You could tear it down like the Astros. The, Yankee, the Yankees never really rebuilt it. Now they're good again, and they have young players. I mean, there's a trillion ways to do it. So I started with basically a fraudulent article, and the second article that I wrote was a follow-up to the first one. It wasn't really good either. And when, when the first time I read some people at BP or Fangrass who are much young, by the way, younger than I was when I started BP, I'm like, oh my God, these people are amazing. So that's really cool that that's progressed that way. The only thing I'll say about myself personally, I think that I came into this idea of storytelling with analytical bent. I mean, I read Bill James when I was literally eight. My dad bought me my first abstract in 1983 when I was eight years old, eight. But I think that I honed it a little bit when I was a stock market writer, because as much as sports, you have a scoreboard and all that stuff and everything is pretty exact and linear. I mean, the stakes are much higher in the stock market. Your analysis better be spot on or you're, you know, Ma, Ma Kettle is going to lose her house. You know, this is serious stuff. And so it required... I mean, exact analysis. We were taught to, to write very simply. There's no flowery words. Do you know what a flesh score is, by the way? No. No. Flesh score, nobody uses Microsoft Word anymore, but Microsoft Word, when it was a thing, when you go to do the like readability statistics with your grammar and your spelling or whatever, there was something called flesh score. Flesh score, if you had a score over 60, it implied a reading level of seventh grade or lower. That's good. You want it to get to like fifth grade because you want it to take very complicated concepts like the stock market and make it as simple as possible so that people can understand it. So I did this for years. I wrote about the stock market for 11 years. So by the time I go to write about baseball, of course it's complicated to adjust for parts factors. Of course that stuff is complicated. It ain't nearly as complicated as price to earnings ratio and, and debt equity and a zillion other things. Uh, you know, writing about a real estate investment trust, how do you make sense of that? So, uh, you know, I just was really lucky. And I, by the way, I'm a journalism major. I'm not a econ guy at all. I was sort of just taught on the job. I was really lucky that I went to the most complicated stuff ever and then was able to transition. And, you know, you hear tales now of some of the newer writers coming on 
who might have been management consultants or maybe they were in law school or whatever. Some of them just wanted to write the whole time, but some of them sort of pivoted and did something else. And by the way, that's the case with GMs now too. Daniels was in the business world. Jeff Luna was a consultant. Um, you have atypical paths to jobs in the industry and in the writing side of the industry where people really love baseball, really love to slice and dice things or whatever, but they might not have had that kind of straight, oh, I'm going to write, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to be a GM, I'm going to enter. You can come at it from all kinds of different ways. I find that really cool too. I totally agree. And I think that's one of the most valuable things. Like, And you mentioned that earlier, which was about your lunch date there, <laughs> about it's a different perspective. You get, you're not getting, there's really not much value in asking the same people the same questions. So, I mean, that's just, that's also just another argument for diversity in the front offices, you know, in, in any workplace in general. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it, it, so I always think that diversity is a competitive advantage and, you know, right. and, I, and you just, you just kind of hit it with a simple anecdote. It's like, well, this person comes from a different educational professional background. It's not always, you know, gender or ethnicity related. Um, but in many ways it is because your cultural experiences and life experiences will differ in how you, because of those factors, like, you know, uh, the way society kind of bubbles things about, but it, it's something that I don't people think of, as 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 a true advantage, but it is. It's it, not not having the same way of looking at things helps, but, you know, especially if you're a decision right. maker. And that and well, you're I, to... I think for front sorry for front for front offices, what I was going to say is that diversity can literally just show up in what school you went to because they, people hire who they know, and so if you went to Princeton, you're going to hire more Princeton people, and it's just and Harvard and so on and so on, and. I mean, obviously, you want true diversity in the sense of, of ethnicity and, and, and gender and so forth. But, I mean, if somebody went to Ohio State, that's ethnicity, which is a sad statement, but not ethnicity, it's diversity. It's a yeah. sad statement on front offices, but that's sort of where we're at. It used to be that it was all these Dallas Green types who were, you know, crotchety and were in the game for 50 years. But by the way, it has value. Scouts have a lot of value. All that's true. But I feel like we've gone back to a little bit of the homogeneity, just an entirely different way. It's all these fresh scrubs, 36-year-old good-looking dudes who know how to wear a suit and went to an Ivy League school and they went to, they went with another guy who went to Ivy League school. That's tough, too. Um, and I'm, by the way, I'm a, I'm a white guy. I mean, I, I understand that there's a little bit of playing going to Ivy League school, but I, I get that it's a little silly for me to be bringing it up, but that's where we're at. I mean, so I, just speaking from personal preference, I love different points of view so much as a consumer of content that I would hope that it would manifest itself in front offices and in our business and writing, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's kind of boring if everybody brings the same thing to the table. You know what I mean? Like there are uh, some of the like weirder baseball writers. In the world. I love the weird baseball. Writers. It's great. Give me that. Or give me something that's very straight laced and stassy or give me something that's entirely anecdotal or whatever. I, I, I want a rainbow of stuff. I don't want to read everybody being the same. And I don't think everybody is the same. I think we're in a very good spot in terms of what it is that we do right now. Yeah, BP has definitely uh, embraced whimsy from, from what we're told. Oh, whimsy. Whimsy is the best, man. I live my life by whimsy. I love whimsy. I just wrote 4,000 words about a freaking Expo's mascot. Obviously, I love whimsy. But there's a, yeah, a, but the stories, just the stories that have, you know, they have. 22 innings there's plenty of things that happen in that game but that, that's the thing about baseball there's so much you can write about it uh and i, I don't know that that's so kind of the point of the questions i i I've kind of thought about it is you know 
coming in today was, you know, how much do, you know, we, I think we've talked about it quite a bit already, was how much do people differentiate themselves by writing stats? But I think, you know, for, it's, if you're a beat writer writing, you know, for a, a particular audience, there's multiple beats. That's, you may think more of differentiation there. But I think at the national level, you're not thinking about how can I differentiate so much as you're just trying to write stories that you enjoy. Not saying that beat writers don't do work they enjoy, (laughs) but you know, we'll, we'll eventually have side of Sharma on to talk about this particular thing about using stats to differentiate in a crowded market. He's great. Yeah. He's, he's awesome. Isn't he? Um, But he, the, the, you know, yeah, Ken Rosenthal, who's now technically a uh, colleague of Sahadev's at uh, the Athletic. Athletic, you know, he, he's just going. He's going to write Ken. There's no like, well, as as a national writer, I need to do this more stuff with stats. You know, he has his brand, he has his his way, his his writing and his style, and it's successful. And if stats come into that, they come into that because they're just around more. And I think you do see him citing that. But but so is there you know. Are, do you see, you know, kind of behind the scenes, kind of some inside baseball writing here with other national level writers? Is there, am I wrong? Like, is there a conscientious, like, I want to differentiate myself. I'm going to use more advanced metrics. I want that will appeal to an audience. I mean, is that as something strategic or, or are people just writing with their, their own voice and not consciously incorporating that? Because the point that the, the, the point I'm trying to yeah. like, I guess, wrap around is it's in everybody's writing. How natural is that? <laughs> is it just part of the fabric, as I kind of claimed earlier, or are people saying, you know, what I got to get this stuff, you know, I, I got to carve this in. It will open up me up to new markets. What's I going think on? you evolve. I think you evolve. Like I met Sam Miller for the first time when he wrote for the OC Register, and this is a long time ago. He was a young puppet. I mean, you know, it was a different kind of thing. He was very smart. He had some analytical stuff in his work, but that evolved, you know? And by the way, he's gone back to ES, now he's ESPN. He's really become more of a storyteller. And some of his best stuff at BP was storytelling too. But I think you're a product of your environment to some extent. You know, you're going to go with whatever feels right to you, but also, you, you know, you have to read the room a little bit. And if you are going to run the BP website, <laughs> there's some expectations. And if you're going to go write for Publication X, there's some expectations. So you don't want to be anything other than yourself, but you can allow yourself to do different things. And I'll give you an example of this. One guy I really like right now is Jared Diamond. Uh, I've always thought that Jared did really good work for the Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal had a great sports section for years, by the way. Sam Walker and Jeff Foster. Jeff Foster used to run the sports section of this tiny little paper called the New York Sun. The New York Sun at one time had uh, Aaron Schatz and Bill Barnwell when they were running a football, football outsiders. Tim Archman, who now runs Deadspin. Um, oh, my God. I'm, I'm forgetting. Nate Silver and the Baseball Prospectus crew. Like, it was the murderer's row. It was ridiculous. And this was a far, forget whatever your politics are. I don't care how right-wing you are. Way more right-wing than you. Way more. Like, the most right-wing thing you've ever heard of, like, to the point of it being nonsensical. And it had this, and it was like a very small little paper, but it was nothing special. Tiny uh, circulation. But it was the best sports section ever because Jeff ran it. And then Jeff and Sam went and ran the Wall Street Journal paper uh, sports section together, and it was magnificent. So Jared is one of those guys who come out of that culture. And Jared was doing beat work. He was writing about, was he Mets or Yankees? Mets. Mets. Well, he was Mets. So he's now on the national beat. And he's free to do whatever he wants, and he has time and, and budget and all that stuff. And he is writing analytical stuff. He's writing analytical stuff for the Wall Street Journal. Now, the Wall Street Journal has a smart audience, financially inclined, probably educated and all that stuff. 
but not necessarily give it to me. Give me all the details. Not just tell me about uh, FRA, but give, give me the formula every time you. They're not like that. But they want smart writing, and I think the way again we talked about it before. Smart can be all kinds of different things. Jared has find out, found a way to tell interesting stories, maybe using a stat as a jumping off point. Hey, did you know this thing about the Dodgers? Not only are they on pace to win 114 games, but they have the best whatever. They're the best base running team since 2007. Really? I didn't, they don't have that many big base dealers. My base dealers, base runners. Here's why. That kind of thing. You pick out nuggets and you can form a narrative around that. And so I will just dick around sometimes on Fangraphs or Baseball Perspectives in addition to reading it on the stats page. What's going on on the stats page today? What's interesting about the Pittsburgh Pirates? I got to write about the Pirates. We haven't read about them in a while. Or maybe I haven't even thought about it. I'm going to write about the Pirates. I'm going to write about something this week. And in the course of my time, I find that the Pirates have – Pirates relievers are walking more guys than any team in 15 years. Whatever. That's a story. That's a, The stat becomes a story. And I think that you can do it that way. So you know, to answer your question, is it a conscious effort? It can be. But I don't know that it's like – oh, I'm cooler than thou, or oh, look at me how smart I am. I think that stats give you a way to tell more stories. And, you know, uh, well, what was the name of Sam's column at BP? Wasn't it like pebble hunting? Is that what it was called? Yeah, that sounds right. Yep. Right. That, that's what we're talking about. That's exactly your pebble hunting. You're going out and you're finding these little things, and you're making something interesting out of them. And, you know, I write a power rankings column for SI, and I have a Friday column where I write 10 little items or whatever. Sometimes they're driven by like a broad story about this team is good, and that oftentimes it's just like, holy crap, a Byron Buxton is amazing lately. What happened? And you go look at his exit velocity, or you look at his chase rate, or whatever, and you find out that the stats are informing what's going on. Or the great example is Aaron Judge. I think it was Mark Simon was on this. I mean, people read about Aaron Judge, but Judge was specifically chasing pitches up in the zone. He wasn't doing it before, and then he was, and he became crap. He wasn't Aaron Judge anymore. Yeah, you There's can a, figure that out because he's batting 200 instead of 350, and he's hitting this many home runs instead of that many. But now we understand why he's crop. We get it. It's so important. So I think that's the best use of stats right now is go out, be interested in it, be literate enough, and be ready to react to the Pittsburgh Pirates being this and Aaron Judge being that. That's my favorite stuff in some ways, taking stats and using it as another tool in your bag. As in, oh, I have a seven iron. No, this requires a wedge. I'm going to pull out the wedge. I'm going to put it on the machine. Jared just wrote about projections and how Pakoda always misses certain types of teams and projection yes. systems in general. So that was a really interesting one because it was about stats. It's but meta, the story, right? but the story was really that teams are very good at optimizing their bullpen, and that's a very important development in baseball. So it was a really, you know. There was a lot to that as opposed to this is, you know, so he was asking us, you know, some interesting questions and, and one of our colleagues quoted quite a bit in that. And uh, so you, you definitely have this. That was one of those rare cases where it, it was like this is about a stat or set of stats, but it was actually hidden in the story behind like Why are these projection systems always missing? And it's well, it's the bullpens. And that and that is the there comes the stories out of that. So sometimes it's. 
much more about the stat, but sometimes it's the stat has that's I think that's a very much an exception. I don't think you find too many stories that are that, you know, starting with an uh, with something that esoteric. I, I think mostly it's like there's a story, there's something going on with a player. You know, there's because the yeah. danger is if you don't start with an idea, the danger is you're just leaderboard sorting and writing about what happens when you sort the leaderboard. So yeah, it's like right. go, going into like, I have a question about Aaron Judge and then looking at 10 different things about Aaron Judge and coming up with the most holistic view you can. That's, you know, that's the, that's the quote, I would say conventional way and healthy way. But what Jared did was amazing because he, but he's, he's someone who's been doing this for a long time and he knew how to write about a stat and pull out from the stat, the baseball, which is, which is, but it's pretty damn good if you think about it. Yeah, and he's, and he's not troll. He's, and, and how many times has somebody written the Bakota story and it's a troll? You know, it's some Kansas City radio host saying, these eggheads, they pick us to win 68 games and we won 85. Like, it happens all the time. Jared is second-leveling it. He's saying, all right, Bakota is wrong. What, what's going on? What's, what's happening? And he's finding an answer to it. I mean, that's great. You know, it, it's, by the way, I'm, I'm thinking back, like I worked at Baseball Perspectives with Nate when he came up when we launched Pocota and we launched a subscription system and all this stuff. And the idea that somebody 15 years later would be writing meta pieces about it, not, oh, Pocota says that the Yankees are going to win or whatever, but here are the the issues that this system has with this team. That's, wow. Like I In the Wall Street Journal. In the, the Wall Street, Street Journal. Journal. In the Wall Street Journal. I never could have, but maybe I should have imagined that because I was writing for Investors Business Daily and I was reading Bill James. So I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just that these things that the three of us have always been interested in, more and more people not only are interested in it, but they're willing to embrace it. They'll say, yeah, yeah, give it to me. I can handle it. I'm smart. I, I'll tell you something. When is this podcast releasing, by the way, coming out? Probably end of this week. Okay. You know what? Couple, I'm dropping next couple of days. I'm, I'm spilling the beans. Tomorrow I'm flying to Kansas City and I'm doing a podcast with Bill James. I'm very fucking excited about it. You can bleep, you can bleep me if you want. Yeah. Yes, right. So uh, that's very, very – I've met Bill many times. We get along very well. By the way, he said some not awesome things recently, but politically, like whatever. whatever. <laughs> those were interesting. Yeah, his Twitter account got yeah, really for, for sure, for sure. And, and, I'm, and I'm not going to dodge those quite where to ask all that stuff. I'm very excited about this podcast. Yeah. But – one thing, and the thing that I always liked about Bill was his writing, not his statistical analysis. Mm-hmm. And particularly, it wasn't even just his writing. He, I liked his attitude about writing. And I used to keep this quote pasted. I had When I worked for, in a cubicle at Investors Business Daily, I had it pasted on the wall. And yeah, I'm going to remember it verbatim, but you can Google it or whatever. Basically, he's saying, flatter your readers. If you flatter your readers and you not only assume knowledge, but almost demand that they get up to your level, a lot of them are going to, and you might leave some people behind and you're not trying to be elitist or snobby or anything like that. But if you give people a chance to be flattered and you give people a chance to broaden their horizons, they're going to want to do that. And it could be something totally dumb, like a mascot. And like, I didn't know that about this mascot in 1989, or it could be the real deal. It could be stuff about, you know, serious statistical measures and, and, and analytical ways of looking at things and so forth. I love that. I love that. And I've been very fortunate professionally to work at a place like Investors Business Daily, which is very sophisticated for, as far as stock market analysis went, to work at a place like Baseball Perspectives, to work at a place like Grandland, to have editors who did never said to me, no, no, dumb it down. They never said that. And I'm not saying I'm the smartest. Like, it's not that my stuff is on such a high level, but I never even had to worry about it. That's great. And, and I hope that 
you know, if you're listening to this, and let's say that you're the kind of person that's thinking about writing for baseball perspectives or whatever, take that Bill James advice. Flatter your readers. It's okay. You know, you don't don't make it dense and obtuse on purpose. Not obtuse. That's not the word I'm looking for. Opaque. Don't don't make it dense and opaque on purpose. But don't be afraid to get in there and have it be smart. And if people need to look something up, that's okay, because they're going to go along with you. They really will. I, I really – that's like one of the driving things of my – of what I do for a living. I, I've taken that Bill James advice to heart. I would be interested. I would want to read a New Yorker piece or a baseball perspective piece or whatever and learn something and have to look up a word that I didn't know or whatever. I'm going to assume that you will too, the reader who's at home. I, I find that to be totally valuable. That might be the most – the first question I might ask him actually when I talk to him tomorrow is about that because I, I, I will never forget that. I think it's great. That's incredible because you know, the it, he I think is in James has probably influenced writers as much if not more than analysts. I mean, there's not a direct link to his work to mine. There's indirect links, but not direct. But like everybody who writes about this stuff, they say, "Oh yeah, I've got you know I've you know, I've collected all his his." his work and for years and, and have the original, you know, unbound partially or cheaply bound copies of these things. And it's there, it's both, um, kind of the foundation, you know, of everything, but also a reminder of the past where we didn't have this, this, this speed of you write something that's out there and everybody sees it and responds to it. So it's created a rather, you know, we wouldn't have had those things without James's work, about Tango and Lippman writing the book. You know, if those things hadn't happened over the years, we wouldn't be able to really talk about all the stuff that, like, that BP did and how Mike Fast and, you know, where, where Nate has gone, where you have gone, and, and what we've been doing here now the past few years. So these things wouldn't have happened without these people who were good writers <laughs> because nobody, yeah. nobody's going to get it. Nobody's going to get exposed to it. Nobody's going to get excited about it if the if the if the uh, author doesn't convey some sense of joy to you. Uh, I love that. And joy is like how I live my life. I'm trying for joy in everything that I do, including my writing. So that's that's very well said, and I really have nothing to add to that. That's perfect. Yeah. Baseball makes it easy. It's hard. You can't do it. Try being not romantic about baseball. Good. Right, and when you don't have a favorite team that can break your heart, and you just root, you just enjoy everything. That it's not a problem. It's, it's much I don't healthier. Talking <laughs> right? Man. Yeah, there's no problem. I don't have to. <laughs> you got you got taller. Your skin cleared up. Your hair is thicker. It's all you know. <laughs> well, I've always been tall. I don't know about the rest. I don't know. About that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think that that that's a uh, maybe a great spot to to sign off here. Um, Jonah, thanks so much for coming on. Um, people can find you uh, everywhere, but specifically um, CBS mm -hmm. Sports yep. and the Jonah Carey Podcast. Yes. And Sports Illustrated. Yes. Is that correct? Is there anything else specific? I also write for sportsnet.ca, lots of Blue Jay stuff, and I write for The Athletic as well, mostly also Blue Jay stuff. Uh, but yeah, CBS is the big one, and uh, yeah, it's uh, very, very lucky that... Uh, to be able to work for a diverse group of places that have been uh, a lot of fun for around a bit. BP alum and a Fangraphs alum, and I've made the rounds, and I, I can't really say that I've ever had a bad experience in any of them. I've been very, very lucky uh, to work in a bunch of cool places. Again, places that say, don't dumb it down. Don't worry about it. Write what you want to want. That, that, that's, that's really, really, uh, that's a great privilege. I think that's a great lesson. Just don't dumb it down. Write smart. That's, to me, you yeah. know, uh, that's the most, that's, that's like, if there's one thing, 
out of this. It's right smart. Don't yeah. At, at, uh, so thanks, Bill James. My God. See, this is all about stat people. Yeah, thanks, Jonah, and uh, good luck with your interviewing, talking to Bill James. Look, I can't wait to hear that. That's gonna be awesome. Thank you, fellas. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jonah. Thanks for coming on. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you to Jonah Carey of CBS Sports and the Jonah Carey Podcast and Sports Illustrated and everywhere else. Um, That was a fantastic conversation that covered a ton of stuff. It did. There there was everything (laughs) from frivolity to communication styles to the... I think almost philosophical things about about writing and, and you know how it's changed over time over the course of his career. So, I, I, you know, I, I probably don't read. You know, you talked about this earlier. So you read you that book, the two thousand and six book. Yep. Baseball between the numbers. I think it was 06 or end of '06. Uh, I think. How how much has changed? I mean, we just spent you know an hour or whatever talking to Jonah about how much has changed. Uh, how much has changed, Kendall? Well, <laughs> yeah, I think I think that a lot has changed, and I think um, kind of what you touched on and Jonah touched on is is the baseline. The baseline's higher. The um, people now have the assumption that that we're not relying on pitcher wins or various other kind of older statistics to understand whether a player is good or not. Um, And so there's, I think, a a broader acceptance of more advanced statistics. And, uh, you know, as Jonah pointed out, things that aren't necessarily advanced statistics that, you know, some people call advanced statistics, um, they're just more, a little bit more sophisticated measures of the things that we've been measuring for a long time, but I think that it's it's the baseline that's changed, and the um, I guess broader understanding of of a baseball fan, you know, they understand, uh, and this could be totally totally biased, you know. I, I want to just put that out. This could be totally biased because of the world that I live in, and the people that I talk to. Maybe uh, you know the average consumer of baseball is like, no, it's batting average. That's the only thing that matters, and uh, and I'm sure that there's some percentage of the population that that still believes that but um i i still think most people get most of their baseball information from their regional baseball broadcast right yeah and so i mean i think that you know as we said in the open i think it'll be interesting to to maybe speak with some of these broadcasters and and trying to understand how they communicate statistics because there's stuff on the screen like you can't avoid it there's the pitch tracks so like anybody so on one hand like i agree the baseline in terms of the baseball like twitter community the baseball reading community the people who probably you know read baseball prospectus yep. people who know who jonah is the people who are listening to this podcast now there is probably much more assumed uh just like knowledge just built into the way we talk and the yeah. way people write and and the way people expect things to be written they, they don't expect a, a primer on what waba means 
in every article about lava. It's just like, if you don't know what it is, you have to go find it, which is pretty much what the Bill James ethos that that Jonah captured. Yep. We came to that late because out of fairness, you have to do have to provide, you know, a, hold a hand for a while. But we're past that now. And it, it's so we all the people reading and looking at fan graphs and looking at baseball prospectus. They, yeah, they get that. But the people watching TV, what they're seeing is like the K zone and stat cast and thing. And then that's it. Yeah. So that's a quantum leap to connect. Like we don't need to evaluate pitchers by wins to that. Like I don't think that connection's made at all. So even though like there's this advanced stuff being filtered all the way up, I yeah. don't know if it's really hitting the understanding of. So in a way, I'm kind of disagreeing that like well, on one hand the baseline's higher. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think Joan is right about like just forget about the baseline in essence and just do the work and, and, and publish it. You can't do that on TV. I don't know. We got to ask some broadcasters to come on. Yeah, for sure. Because sure. I think like, I mean, in, in stuff like, uh, like StatCast and those other things, you know, those are in some ways the things that come out are, are consumer focused mm-hmm. and meant for, you know, the general consumer to, to kind of take all of this massive amount of information that MLB advanced media has and um, kind of get it in snackable chunks that can be shared in a TV broadcast in real time, which is extremely difficult. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, they have a, a big job ahead of them as, as that, as that goes. But I think that's going to be another, you know, we've talked, I mean, kind of we're hearkening back to past episodes here, but like, we talked about what's the next step and, and, you know, getting that stat cast data into something that is accessible and understandable to the general public. So broadcasters or writers or, you know, people like that can, can get it out there and into people's um, consciousness. I, th- I think that that's going to be a big change, but maybe, maybe that's the new divide in baseball. It's the, it, it's the people who have the, the, appetite and or leisure time to consume all this written stuff yep. and the folks who have to realign the distillations of it on their TV broadcast just because they have other slash better things to do yeah yeah do well baseball fans so. <laughs> right baseball Twitter uh, I, <laughs> I think that and I think that there is like uh, also um, kind of misunderstandings between the two because you know the hardcore baseball um analyst fan or, or whatever who who's more conversant with the advanced statistics is like oh come on like we don't need to hear about that on you know mlb network or on the broadcast or whatever and it's like well that's not for you like that's you know yeah you don't need to hear about that but that's not for you that those those tidbits that those anecdotes those stories it's not for somebody who knows you know how to do all of this stuff themselves or knows how to consume this stuff it's for the the fan who's like just you know drinking their beer and sitting in their lawn chair on a summer evening trying to enjoy a baseball game yeah and it's kind of the inverse or converse of whatever the right word is uh, of that is me complaining about the player interviews during ball games right on Sunday nights, like this, that's not for you, Harry. Right. That that's for someone who's this is their only game that, that they watch all week. Right. And you know, I have to remember back to when baseball was like that when I was very young. Instead, I have access to every you know, fifteen major league games a day, basically. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
it's it's yeah things have changed so i think that yeah maybe the divide so you're communicating to all these different audiences that makes it even harder so yeah i guess we got to get some of these broadcaster types on there and that tells how they do it and how we can do it better to support what they're doing so with that uh we're going to wrap up episode four here and again um reach out to us on twitter at stolen underscore signs and email us stolen underscore signs at baseballprospectus.com if you have any questions feedback um suggestions for people to talk to or topics or anything like that and of course uh share this with your friends and with your enemies and with everyone you come into contact with um and uh rate us on itunes and give us a review and we would be extremely grateful and um yeah so i think that's about it for this week harry and um we'll talk next time yeah next until next time good luck baseball good luck baseball fans and friends (laughs) 